Hello and welcome to Neuroscience Podcast number four with me, Sam Webster, and you, Phil Newton. Hi, Phil. Hello. What are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about the autonomic nervous system. Excellent, because I know a bit about the autonomic nervous system because I'm an anatomist. Well, that's that's good for everyone concerned. <laughs> so we we can probably both combine on this one then. Yeah, it'll be like a two-way conversation. Rather than a one-way conversation of me looking like an idiot. Sounding like an idiot. I, I did not say that. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to structure this? What are the key things you want the students to get from this? We are, as in previous podcasts, going to focus on the basic concepts, what the autonomic nervous system is, what it does, and how it does it. Uh, I would like to spend a bit of time talking about the autonomic nervous system as a drug target and uh, some of the drugs that act upon it. Uh-huh. And we'll also spend some time talking about the anatomy of the autonomic nervous system because I believe that is that is your passion. Well, the anatomy is. Maybe not the anatomy of the autonomic nervous system itself, but it is really interesting, especially when you get into the head and neck. But we won't go into that sort of detail. Uh, uh, if you could see his face, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> he, is, he is genuinely excited, bouncing up and down in his chair at the thought of getting to talk about some anatomy. Honestly, you see the route some of those little nerve fibres take to I... find their way to the orbit all the way from anyway. It is good. Okay, so we're going to start off with what will probably be really useful for everybody is a refresh of the autonomic nervous system. Then we're going to get into some complex stuff that will be probably good for everybody as well. Yeah, it's yeah. all going to be good for everybody. It's going to be good for everybody, especially me. We should probably start by very simply defining what the autonomic nervous system is in terms of the grand scheme of the nervous system. Yes, good idea. I'm full of good ideas. So the... Nervous system is broken up into two major parts. The central nervous system, uh-huh. which is your brain and spinal cord. The bit I don't understand. Which is the interesting bit. Right. And then the peripheral nervous system. Aha, uh-huh. I guess I understand some of that. You do. Yeah. That's good. Uh, the peripheral nervous system is then subdivided into the somatic motor system, which yeah. uh, we will talk about probably in podcast number five. Ooh. And the autonomic nervous system, yes. which we'll talk about today. Okay. So the autonomic nervous system is part of the peripheral nervous system. Yes. And very simply, what the autonomic nervous system does is carry out the wishes of the central nervous system. It's uh, sometimes called the involuntary nervous system. It carries the commands from the central nervous system to the effector organs of your body. Carry out the wishes of the central nervous system. Pretty much. I like yeah. that. I don't think I've ever read that in a textbook. I, I somewhat just made it up on the spot. I like that. Uh, so you know, I'm sure, that the brain is the most important and interesting part of the body. Yes. And that all other organs and structures in the body are subservient to the brain. Brain wouldn't do very well without the other bits, though, would it? Yeah, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, but I'm really... The kidneys? Come on. So... Yeah, the kidneys. Anyway, back on track. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, the brain needs to tell these other um, minions what to do and how to do it, and it does so pretty So it has much. to look after itself? Yes. Ah, I see where you're going now. Yeah. So it does so through the autonomic nervous system. So the somatic part is the stuff that we're controlling to move our mouth and talk and make noises. The motor system here is what innovates the muscles. and The somatic part is the bit that we think about that we can control is the autonomic bit that you're talking about is the brain looking after the systems that look after it yes i like that just definition it, well <laughs> that's good maybe you can put, make that as a stem of an emq <laughs> so uh yeah your your the maintenance of the function of your kidneys your liver your heart uh your sweat glands all the rest of it they do receive uh information from the nervous system and that that it's pretty much what the autonomic nervous system does. And a lot of what it does happens without you even knowing it. Can you give me some examples? Uh, we will We will have examples throughout uh, the podcast. Uh, it's probably best if we, if we talk about um, specific organs in terms of their, the role of the autonomic nervous system in regulating them. Um, but uh, in terms of responding to changes in electrolyte concentration, in, uh, when you are thirsty, you get information from those lower parts of your brain, the brainstem, the hypothalamus, that will tell your kidneys to increase uh, output or decrease output, whatever. There what about, go. yeah, okay. Is that, is that a good enough example for you? Fine. Are you bit, sure? It's a bit dull. <laughs> it's a kidney. <laughs> I mean, what? 
I was thinking of, you know, maybe something to make my heart beat faster. Uh, or maybe if I saw a flapjack and got excited, you know. Well, there you go. Okay, so you see uh, a flapjack, your heart might beat slightly faster. You open the flapjack and discover that it uh, is on fire and also radioactive. <laughs> and uh, your heart then beats very fast because you don't want to die. That uh-huh. would be your autonomic nervous system telling your heart to speed up. That's a good the initial example. The commands to do that may come from higher centers, things like your amygdala that are involved in right. generating fear, but the actual uh, information is conveyed via the autonomic nervous system to your heart. Getting my body to run ready to run away from that flapjack. Yes. Uh-huh, good, okay. Unless you were really very hungry. I think we've confused all our listeners now. It's okay. Sorry, all listeners. Three of them. Yeah. Sorry, you two. Sorry, mum. <laughs> all right, so where were we? So... All right, so we've got the autonomic nervous system. It's part of the peripheral nervous system. Right. The autonomic nervous system is itself divided up into three major components, the sympathetic system, the parasympathetic system, and the enteric nervous system. Yeah, okay. Uh, We will talk only about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Good. And it's good. Yeah, I don't like talking about the enteric nervous system much. It brings you out in a rash, does it? Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, we'll talk mostly about those two. Uh, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic are two separate but complementary systems. So pretty much every organ receives innovation from the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. Yep. And whatever one does, the other system does the opposite. Uh-huh. Usually. Or not maybe not the opposite, but has a complementary function. So Ish. Ish, yeah. So uh, you want to talk about the heart. So activating your sympathetic system increases your heart rate, increases the the force with which your heart beats. Activating the parasympathetic system decreases heart rate and the force with which it contracts. Cool. And the same is true of of most organs. There are some exceptions we should mention. The spleen, sweat glands, pyloractor muscles, and blood vessels. Right. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah, yeah, blood vessels. Yeah, I think that's a good example. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, if you want to think of a general rule to uh, remember what it is that the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems do to a particular organ, activation of a sympathetic system generally results in uh, responses that are part of the so-called fight or flight response. Yeah. So when you get stressed, you're the sympathetic system becomes active. So your heart rate goes up, you stop salivating, you, your intestines you know, shut down because you're not want to worry about digesting food. You've got to either fight the flapjack or run away from the flapjack. <laughs> uh, whereas your parasympathetic system, activation of, results in a set of responses more that can be classified as rest and digest. Uh-huh. So if the flapjack isn't on fire or radioactive, it's just an ordinary flapjack and you eat it, the uh, actions involved in reclining in your armchair and digesting the flapjack will involve the activation of your parasympathetic system. I see, I see. We haven't talked about any anatomy yet. No, we're getting there. You want to talk about some anatomy? I can do if you'd like. It's not up to me, Sam. <laughs> I don't want to deny you this opportunity. So, well, well, what we could do is I'll explain the very basic structure of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Go on then. In the sort of cartoon form. Uh, Both these components of the autonomic system come, uh, the best way to phrase this, come in two parts. Okay, so the information comes down the spinal cord or in many cases directly from the spinal cord of the brainstem. But it leaves the central nervous system uh, what we call preganglionic neurons. Yep. Okay, and they're called preganglionic because they terminate in ganglia. Yeah. And those ganglia are located in various places, and we'll come on to talk about where and what they are in a little bit. Then from those ganglia, you have what we call postganglionic neurons. Makes sense. And those go from the ganglia to the effector organs, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, etc., etc. Yep. The preganglionic neurons that go from the central nervous system to the ganglia are myelinated. Do we yeah. talk about myelin? I think we probably have. Yeah, I think in podcast one, I'm sure we did. Myelin, it's fatty insulation layer, electrical insulation tape that goes around neurons and allows the information conveyed in them to travel faster. Postganglionic neurons are unmyelinated. All right, so 
anatomy. The preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic system are located within the spinal cord, uh, within the central sections of the spinal cord from T1 down to L2. Yeah. And now we're talking language that you understand. <clears throat> yeah, sure. This is the bit I understand. So these are the preganglionic sympathetic neurons come out of the spinal cord say the same essentially the same place as the, the other spinal nerves do where they come from i don't know that's kind of a, a magical mystery to me where does it come from where does the neuron come from where does the preganglionic neuron where does it run it where runs it, from the spinal cord so it just appears in the spinal cord yeah oh that that's will, it it's just a short little loop from the spinal cord yes so where does it what does it hook up to in the spinal cord uh, information will be conveyed down the spinal cord from the important areas of the brain. Just through a tract? Yeah. See, that's the magical bit I didn't get. <laughs> okay. After that, when it comes out, I'm fine. Right. But how it hooks up to the brain and... We don't need to it. worry about that at this point. <laughs> uh, it, it is obviously an important concept. Where does the information come from? Yes. And the answer to that at this point is it comes from the brain, it travels down the spinal cord, and that's really all we need to know. And then you've got a little ditty sympathetic preganglionic sympathetic neuron yeah. picks up that information uh -huh. takes it out takes it out of the spinal cord into the ganglia see that's what i needed to know well there you go there you go anyway going back where was i so so you've got the preganglionic sympathetic neuron coming out of the spinal cord mm -hmm. and it runs a little way uh, out of the spinal cord to the sympathetic ganglia yes which is um so you've got these ganglia running up and down the Are they actually running on little ganglia legs? Yes. No. <laughs> Passing, <laughs> traveling. Yes, little ganglia legs. No, we're making it worse for everybody now. I'm sorry, everybody. So on either side of the, of the vertebra, so these could be called prevertebral ganglia, as they often are, um, on either side of the vertebra, say the posterior thoracic wall, posterior abdominal wall, you have these ganglia running up and down either side of the of the vertebra. But the preganglionic sympathetic neurons only come out of the spinal cord between T1 and L2, right? Oh. But the ganglia run all the way up through the cervical region or cervical region up into the neck, and they also run all the way down into the pelvis uh -huh. where some of those sympathetic neurons kind of meet at the bottom. So that means that some of those preganglionic sympathetic neurons are running straight out of the spinal cord and uh, synapsing in the ganglia at the same level as that oh. spinal nerve. But some of them are running into that ganglion and without synapsing run up to the next ganglion or beyond and synapse there with the postganglionic sympathetic neurons that continue on to the organ that they're going to affect. Yep. Interesting, huh? The best bit is, right, oh. if you've got these preganglionic sympathetic neurons coming out of, say, T1, and they're gonna, how are they going to get to structures in the eye? Because you have sympathetic effects in the eyeball. Right. So they, they take these fantastic routes. So they've passed their way up into the, the cervical region. And then they, uh, the same with most of these tiny little nerves, they then follow the, the arteries, the major arteries, so in this case, the common carotid, internal carotid, and so on, up inside the cranium, and then anteriorly out through some of the foramina and the gaps there into the space of the orbit. Honestly, it is really intricate, lovely stuff when you when you look at it. Ladies anyway, and gentlemen, he is he is beaming from ear to ear. It's I like head and neck anatomy. It's really good fun. But also then at the other end, so if if the if the lowest level, the lowest spinal level that a sympathetic preganglionic neuron will leave the spinal cord is l2 is that right that's correct then again likewise that's going to pass out either straight into the ganglion at the same spinal level synapse and then that information is going to be carried on in the post ganglionic uh, sympathetic neuron or another neuron is going to pass into the ganglion not synapse descend down to the next ganglion or the one below or the one below or the one below where it eventually synapses and then sends that information off on a different post ganglionic sympathetic neuron it's cool, isn't it? You you have nailed the anatomy. Isn't it good, though? Of the sympathetic system. Why doesn't it just come out in the cervical region or the uh, lower... I mean, okay, the lower... No, you know, it could come out of the what, lower lumbar what, what spinal regions sound, as well. So. Can't hear it on my mic, on my headphones. Somebody was drilling. Somebody's drilling. I think this guy's replacing the windows, isn't it? Anyway, back to my question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that buzzing in my head or is it real? <laughs> That's real. 
Um, so why don't you have sympathetic neurons higher or lower than T1, L2? Any idea? No. No. Okay, me neither. I, I suspect if there is an evolutionary answer to that, it's probably not something that we need to worry about. No, I wonder if it's developmental, if it's a neural crest cell thing or something, but I don't see why. Anyway, is there any more anatomy you'd like me to cover? Uh Yes, there is one other thing we should perhaps clarify with the sympathetic nervous system anatomy is that there are two sympathetic chains, just in case there was any sort on of... On either thing. side. One either side of the spinal cord. Yeah, if you've got the enhanced version of the podcast, I'll probably stick a photo up there as well of one of our models. There's going to be an enhanced version? I think I might do an enhanced version and an MP3 version, yes. Just because there's some anatomy, this one gets special treatment. Yes, pictures. There's no point having pictures of any other neuroscience, is there? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if neuroscience was more visual, I'd understand it. What can I tell you? We can make it as visual as you want. I can draw you a picture of a neuron. I, I understand. What, I, there you go. See, I understand a neuron because people have drawn pictures of it. But you know, neuroscience textbooks are kind of blue and grey and green. They're all the same colour all the way what, through. What is it that you would would, quite, would be best explained using a picture that you don't currently understand? The brain inside it, where stuff is, how it's all hooked up. And not with those little track drawings in black and white. <laughs> It's you know it's not easily marked out. I'm I'm sorry. It's it's conceptual. It's not visual. Just use some bloody colour. The brain is a very brown and grey looking thing. It's not. Is it the brain that's a brown and grey looking thing, or is it the neuroscientist looking at it? You know, as a man who has such such fondness for a featureless Macintosh products, I thought you'd appreciate that <laughs> beneath the bland of featureless surface is uh, an information powerhouse. I will provide you with as many pictures as you can to maybe satisfy we could, those anatomists among you. Maybe we could do another textbook. Okay, it's a deal. A new textbook on neuroscience. Colouring in neuroscience. <gasps> yeah, has it been done yet? Uh, it has been done for neuroanatomy, and I, I, I've, it's been reported that students find it useful. Okay. It's a bit difficult to colour in glutamate versus GABA, but <laughs> we could try. Yeah. Right, where were we? We were, all right, I think we were done with sympathetic anatomy. Okay, you're happy with all that. I mean, the other bit to say is that the postganglionic sympathetic neurons then basically track their way to the effective organ, the organ uh-huh. by the arteries, by the blood vessels. Yes. And this is why you find plexuses dotted around. Plexuses? Plexuses is the correct plural. It's not no. plexi. Well, what do I know? You're the anatomist. There you go, plexuses. No, so no. you have uh, plexuses. <laughs> you have plexuses dotted down the aorta. Uh-huh. So you have the cardiac plexus, pulmonary plexus, celiac plexus, and it's basically where those both both sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves have come together and then run off to their various organs. Is it just them, or is there a, there a blood vessel associated with that too? Well, it's it's the large aorta, so oh, they're sat on oh, the aorta. Oh, but then, if you look at most of the large arteries, they'll be wrapped around with small sympathetic postganglionic neurons and usually parasympathetic too. And I, as I understand it, the the much of the anatomy of the sympathetic system is named after the arteries which it follows. Yes, including the ganglia that compose the chains. Yes. So you have a, uh, a renal ganglia and a superior ganglia, etc. Yes, and superior is, mesenteric. Ganglia. This is much to do with where it is than anything else. Yeah. So it's all anatomy at the end of the day. Yeah. All right. Sorted. Sympathetic system done. Do you want to do parasympathetic? I, I feel it would be rude not to. Parasympathetic's great. It is. Yeah, well, I mean, most students will have seen, will be aware of the parasympathetic nervous system, certainly through the vagus nerve, right? Cranial oh. nerve 10, the wandering nerve. But there are four cranial nerves that have parasympathetic fibers in them. Oh. So these I get, these are running directly from the brain, right? Uh, yes. Are they? Are they like coming out of some magic centers that do I, stuff? That's information I defer to you on uh, superior oh. knowledge on. So I just know where they come out. Anyway, so cranial nerves 3. Uh, seven, nine, and ten. Mm-hmm. So, Ocular motor, facial, and glossopharyngeal. Very good. And ten is then the vagus. So three, uh, ocular motor goes out to the eye. Uh, five, facial is also the, the is also the cranial nerve that makes you dribble and snot and your eyes water. Goes to the mucous membranes in, in the nose. Uh, goes to the lacrimal gland. Goes to two of the salivary glands yeah so that's obviously all under parasympathetic control uh if we're talking about we were talking about uh parasympathetic being rest and digest mm-hmm. so salivating so 
Cranial nerve. <laughs> what a wonderful sound effect that was, ladies and gentlemen. Cranial nerve nine, the glossopharyngeal, innervates the parotid gland. So again, another salivary nerve, a uh, salivary gland. And then ten, the vagus nerve, starts off in the head, uh, follows essentially pretty much the GI tract down into the abdomen, innervating all the GI stuff. So more rest and digest. So, so our parasympathetic and our sympathetic systems obviously from what we've just talked about originate in different areas yes and they come together obviously they have to come together at the target organ yes and you're saying they come together at the plexuses yeah they usually kind of they're on their way to the same place uh-huh plexus yeah they're kind of these high fives and on they go yeah it's like a bottleneck isn't it i see yeah they don't learn some anatomy there yeah um the vagus nerve only get doesn't cover the entire abdomen, doesn't get all the way down the entire GI tract. Uh, the stuff in the very the very distal GI tract and the pelvis stuff is innervated by parasympathetic nerves that come from the pelvis. The sacral segments S two to S four. They're very good. Yes. Oh, yeah. So you have I've got it written on the screen in front of me. <laughs> so you have the pelvic splanchnic nerves. Uh, running from S2 to S4 up to all those other tissues that don't get parasympathetic fibres from the vagus in the pelvis and the abdomen. And that's it. Bada boom, bada bing. Yeah, very simple. Yeah. So our, in terms of our spinal cord or our extended spinal cord to include our brainstem, our parasympathetic arises at the top and tail ah. and everything in between is sympathetic. Yeah. Do you want to talk about referred pain? I, there's nothing I'd like more than to talk about referred pain. Anybody else want to hear about referred pain? No? I I hear a, a chorus of a, approval from so, the cheap seats. So the ref, referred pain is linked into the autonomic nervous system, right? Because, say, if so you... What, what is referred pain? So referred pain is pain from a structure, but you perceive that pain to be somewhere else in your body. Okay. It's important for students to be aware of this because then they can recognize pain in one region of the body in a particular dermatome as possibly originating from a different organ or a particular organ. Helps diagnostically, right? For example, the appendix. The appendix is always a good one. So you don't have any somatic sensory nerves, any general sensory nerves passing from your appendix back to your brain. So you can't perceive pain of the appendix as you would pain from sticking a pin into your forearm uh-huh. right but the pain is still there so hang on the pain is still there the pain is oh i've talked to a neuroscientist now aren't i <laughs> well it's a philosophical question isn't it yeah. I mean, if, ah, I mean, is the pain there if there's no sensory innovation oh. we're going to get into arguments about consciousness next okay, all right carry on uh so you don't feel the pain in the organ such as the appendix or the heart you feel it Elsewhere. Well, that that pain sensory, that nociception, that pain sensory information will pass through the autonomic nervous system back to the brain. The uh, That sensory information is going to go back into the spinal cord at about the level of T10, right? Are we talking Just specifically about the appendix? Specifically about the appendix. So f- for those nerves taking sensory information from the appendix that just happens to be where they go back into the spinal cord about the level of t10 you also then have some somatic sensory nerves some general sensory nerves passing from the skin and the abdominal wall and the peritoneum and what have you back into the spinal cord at t10 your brain perceives the pain from the appendix to actually be from the skin of the dermatome of t10 which is about the same level as your umbilicus as your belly button right so in the early stages of pel- of uh, inflammation of the appendix the pain appears to be around the level of the belly button and may seem to move medially and then laterally so so the appendix becomes stretched and or inflamed yeah and that information is conveyed back into the the uh, t10 via the autonomic nervous system yeah which then what your brain recognizes the level at which that information has entered the spinal cord uh-huh. but it perceives it as coming from a somatic nerve not from an autonomic nerve so that how does that information go from your uh, autonomic innovation of your appendix to the sensory innovation of the skin which enters it's, t10 it, 
it's a perception thing. I don't know. You're the neuroscientist. You tell me. I, I was hoping we could make it a worked example. I don't know. Once it gets in the spinal cord, it's all magic to me. Okay, so magic happens. Magic, <laughs> magic happens. The brain is, and the brain is used to experiencing pain from the skin. It sees pain from the skin. It's something you, whereas pain from the appendix is, is the first time it's going to come across it. Um, in fact, as the inflammation develops, you often get the appendix adhering to the peritoneum. Now, the peritoneum is innervated by somatic nerves, and the pain becomes more localised to the region of the appendix, which is quite a bit lower than right. the dermatome T10. So it starts the in your belly button, and then it moves then to a more anatomically accurate location. To a more inguinal region. Yeah. yeah. I believe we will we will cover this topic in some neuroscientific detail in week 2.30. Good, you can fill me in what the hell happens after I get to the spinal cord. Okay. We'll worry about it then, shall we? Okay, so that's... Should we, should we keep them on tenterhooks? Yes. Okay. We've got to go look it up, haven't we? <laughs> no, no, Samuel, no. <laughs> oh, we are walking encyclopedias. Ah, yes, of course we are. Okay. So that's the anatomy of the sympathetic nervous system, the anatomy of the parasympathetic nervous is system. Is that all the para- uh, parasympathetic anatomy? I believe it is. Uh, one one point that's perhaps worth making on a cellular level, um, are preganglionic parasympathetic cells synapse with uh, pretty much with very few postganglionic neurons. So you have one preganglionic to three postganglionic on average. Really? Yeah. Whereas you're, you're sympathetic, you have uh, one preganglionic onto, on average, 10, but as many as 200 postganglionic neurons. Eesh. Meaning that the actions of your parasympathetic system are perhaps a little more focused and a little more restricted than those of your sympathetic system, which are a bit more general. Ah. Yeah. We could that's, also that's almost anatomy. Yeah, no, that's good. We could also talk about some of the parasympathetic ganglia, but I think that's a bit too much detail for this. Well, if you want to talk about them, Samuel, I, I wouldn't want to deny you the opportunity. It's too much detail for this. Okay. There are some very interestingly placed ganglia within the head and so on, but for another right. podcast, actually, oh. we might have done it in one of the anatomy and embryology podcasts. There so there's a cross reference. Beautiful. Do you yeah. remember the number? No. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's most of the anatomy. We have, to this point, well, actually, we have talked a little bit about sensory feedback, I guess. The general principles we talked about are information coming from on high out to the organs via the autonomic nervous system. Obviously, the autonomic nervous system, or the organs, I should say, then need uh, to feed back to the nervous system to say, yes, I've done what you told me to do. Uh-huh. So uh, an example being, your sympathetic system becomes activated, increases your heart rate, you run away from the flapjack, your uh, brain needs to know, first of all, that your heart rate has increased. Right. And thus, uh, when it, to stop it increasing too much or beating too fast or too hard, it needs to be able to then send information back through the parasympathetic system to be able to tell it to slow down. So it's a two-way... Uh, uh, communication, much like this podcast. Uh, we won't go into the detail of the anatomy of how information comes back from the various organs into the autonomic nervous system. We should just be aware that it does. And uh, examples which the students may wish to look up include things like the barrow reflex, um, yep. etc. Okay. Okay. Tie it with a bit of physiology. A bit of physiology, yeah. Nice. What haven't we covered? We've done, in fact, we've done information we've done physiology talked a bit about a bit of motor we've covered everything yes Can yes i know the brain's very important i, I wasn't saying that yes oh, yes getting yes. a bit defensive now uh all right so summarize the anatomy an autonomic nervous system sympathetic parasympathetic and enteric your sympathetic activation results in fight or flight your parasympathetic in rest or digest rest and digest sorry Sympathetic outflow comes from the uh, thoracolumbar segments of the spinal cord. Parasympathetic outflow from the craniosacral segments, top and tail. All right. There are, obviously this is for medical students. We're interested in the clinical relevance of all this information. There are some disorders of the autonomic nervous system. They are... How should one phrase this professionally? They're not 
particularly uh, important in terms of their incidence and severity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we will mention them briefly. Uh, orthostatic hypertension. Oh are yes, you, are you familiar with? I've that? heard of that. Yeah, where you stand up and get dizzy and fall down. Exactly. That's simply because your um, your autonomic nervous system doesn't keep up quite quickly enough with. Uh, the changes in blood pressure, etc. Uh-huh. Um, and it is a side effect of some of the drugs we'll come on to talk about a bit later. Horner syndrome and Frey syndrome are uh, disorders of the autonomic nervous system that arise through damage to uh, some of the fibers that, that form the autonomic system, mostly parasympathetic fibers. And uh, should we talk about them? Could do. I'm also interested, just a nice simple question, hopefully. What happens with a spinal cord lesion? What do you mean? If you cut the spinal cord, what happens to the autonomic nervous system distal to that lesion? Uh, its function may be impaired. Okay, thanks. Yes, no, I expected it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, we will talk about spinal cord lesions a bit when we talk about the motor system. Does it get interesting when you talk about like hemi lesions? Yes. Oh. But it becomes interesting from, uh, I mean, there are some sensory perception and some, some motor deficits that are, interesting is the word, certainly relevant uh, diagnostically. But I don't think we talk right. specifically about impaired, you know, autonomic function as a result of spinal cord damage. We could. Maybe we'll talk about that in years to come. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We will talk briefly about Frey syndrome because it's it's moderately interesting tell me about Frey syndrome I don't think I've ever heard of it ever you haven't don't think so Frey syndrome it's where the parasympathetic fibers that supply the parotid gland oh from the glossopharyngeal become uh, in the words of the textbook diverted okay, right. so if you have surgery yeah and you cut those fibers yeah, yeah. or if you get shot in the mouth or yeah, something yeah. horrible happens sure um those fibers can become diverted. That is, when they heal, they don't re-innovate the parotid gland. Yeah. Instead, they become diverted to the sweat glands of the skin that overlie uh, the parotid gland. Yeah. Therefore, when, uh, for example, you're supposed to salivate, in my case, when you smell vinegar, in your case, when you see a flapjack, uh -huh. instead of producing the appropriate salivary response, you'll sweat. Cool. Well, so, not cool for the person who's got it, but still. That's... Well, it may actually cool them, I suppose, if they, uh, <laughs> when they see a flapjack. It'll only be, the sweating will be localized to yeah. the area of the skin over the parotid yeah. gland. Wow. And I don't suppose it's especially uh, damaging. Good party trick. Say that. Well, yes, I suppose it might be serious for some people. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that's very interesting. It is. I like that, yeah. Well, yeah. okay, there you go. I thought you'd like it. Yeah, thank you. I'll share it with you. Bit of anatomy. All right, so we're done with anatomy now, Sam. Oh, okay, I'll go back to sleep. <laughs> Despair sometimes. I'll go get another cup of coffee or something while you rattle on. Um, now we're going to talk about the really useful and interesting clinical relevance of the autonomic nervous system. Which is? That it is a drug target for a wide variety of disorders. Right. So, as we've said, your autonomic system is how the information from your central nervous system eventually gets conveyed to your target organs, yeah. your heart, your liver, etc. Yeah. Obviously, these organs can go wrong and require uh, drugs to modify their function. Oh, yeah, I see where you're going. You do? Yeah. So in many cases, rather than directly target the function of the organ concerned, it is better to target the autonomic innovation of that organ. For example, the heart, heart rate is under the control of the autonomic system through um, uh, adrenergic receptors. And targeting those receptors can make the heart beat faster or slower, depending upon the drug that you use. Uh. And the same process is, principle is repeated throughout the body. Are the neurons of the sympathetic nervous system generally similar? Do they work in a similar way, or are they different than with different organs? Well, we'll talk about that now. We'll talk about the the principal difference that we need to worry about is the um, 
the neurotransmitters that are released. Uh huh. Okay. Go so on then. Tell me. Tell me. I'm, I'm, t- I'm back now. I'm not going to go make me coffee. I'm interested again. Okay. Okay. So going back briefly, 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 briefly back to the anatomy of the autonomic system, we have our preganglionic and our postganglionic neurons. Yeah. All right. Our preganglionic neurons in both our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous systems release acetylcholine. Okay. That acetylcholine is released onto the postganglionic neurons where it acts upon nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Right. In our sympathetic nervous system, our postganglionic neurons release noradrenaline. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fine. In our parasympathetic system, our postganglionic neurons release acetylcholine. Right. Okay, so there's three, no, there's not three, there's four key uh, components of the autonomic nervous system you need to remember. Preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic system, postganglionic neurons of the sympathetic system, and the pre- and postganglionic neurons of the parasympathetic system. Yeah. Three of them release acetylcholine. The postganglionic neurons of the sympathetic system release noradrenaline. Okay? Okay, yeah. Okay. 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 Um, so what we will talk about are the basically the biology of those neurotransmitters and then how that biology is manipulated by various drugs to produce therapeutic effects. Go for it. Yeah, do it. Okay. Go on. He's on the edge of his seat. Yeah. Enough of a preamble. Uh, you know, we've got to get the preamble straight. We've got to get the basics down so that the, what, the detail is uh, clearly understood. All right, so acetylcholine. Uh, we talked about this in week one, two, three, did we? I have no idea. You don't remember? I don't do weeks very well. When we talked about neurotransmitters? Yeah. We talked about acetylcholine, yeah, yeah, sure. and we said we won't talk about this a lot because we'll talk about it when we talk about the autonomic nervous system. Which is now. Which is now. Come on. So, <laughs> uh, there are acetylcholine. Receptors. We'll talk about receptors briefly. Yeah. Two major types of receptor. Yeah. Your nicotinic. Yeah. And your muscarinic. Okay, you mentioned the nic- nicotinic. Nicotinic receptors are ionotropic. Remember what that means? No. It means that they conduct ions. Yes. They okay. Are, their actions are generally ah, yeah, yeah. fast. There are multiple subtypes, and there are multiple isoforms of the different subtypes. Ah. So there's a lot of variation in nicotinic receptor biology, and they have tissue-specific expression. Oh, that's brilliant. That's got to be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um. They're also present on the neuromuscular junction. We'll worry about that when we talk about the motor system. Muscarinic receptors, they are metabotropic. Remember what that means? No. It means that they are, they are not ionotropic. They <laughs> don't conduct ions, so they're a bit slow. Right. And they are on the effector organs of uh, the parasympathetic system. Okay, so nicotinic receptors are on your postganglionic neurons. Yeah. Your muscarinic receptors are on your kidneys and whatever yeah, yeah. there is an important res- uh, exception we should mention uh which is the adrenal medulla oh now we're back to some anatomy and some embryology and some embryology yes which is why i thought you might like to talk about it uh would you would you care to to take the stage yeah it can do so the uh the, the medulla of the suprarenal gland is different to the cortex and it's, it's developmentally different like most of the endocrine glands in the body so the medulla has developed from neural crest cells that have migrated there uh from the developing central nervous system uh, so it's basically a little bit of nervous system yeah so the sympathetic nervous system all that preganglionic stuff those those are all from neural crest cells uh-huh. so this is very much part of the sympathetic nervous system the suprarenal or adrenal medulla uh-huh. so the adrenal medulla doesn't receive postganglionic innovation. Okay, the adrenal medulla receives direct innovation by preganglionic neurons. Directly wired up. Directly wired up and the the cells or at least the target cells of the adrenal medulla are in themselves basically postganglionic neurons. Yeah, right. And then squirt yeah. catecholine neurotransmitters, noradrenaline, yeah, uh, dopamine into the circulation. Yeah. So it is a bit of an exception. Something to bear in mind. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, you like that? Yeah. Okay, so what we're talking about, acetylcholine. All right, if you block nicotinic acetylcholine receptors... Right, okay, yeah. 
then you pretty much shut down the autonomic nervous system. Which would be bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So they used to be uh, used for things like uh, anesthesia or stemming blood flow during surgery, etc. They're not oh, really used okay. anymore. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry about them too much. All right. So that's the things that block nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Uh, drugs that activate nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Can you give me an example? No. I have a guess. What activates a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor? Uh, nicotine? Good man. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know. <laughs> so that's one mark of the exam then. Well, it could be, it could be. Uh, nicotine increases heart rate, increases blood pressure. Um, it's the major addictive agent in tobacco smoke, although it's not the agent which produces many of the bad effects of tobacco smoke, um, which is why you can... Uh, wear nicotine patches and chew nicotine gum without getting emphysema, for example. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, so oh, that's nicotinic. Cool. Yeah. Muscarinic acetylcholine receptors also show tissue-specific distribution, and they are distributed on the affected organs, as we said. There are f five major types, M1 through M5. We won't talk about which different types are on the different organs. Uh, we can say that they would be fantastic pharmacological well, they are fantastic targets, but they're not very clinically useful because there are no good subtype-specific reagents. Uh. So if we had a drug that targeted, say, M1 receptors, it would, be, it would be useful, but we don't. I was getting excited then. Sorry. Oh, okay. There are drugs which target <coughs> the muscarinic receptor family. Uh, you going to guess? No. Oh. Trying to make it interactive for him. Sorry. All right. So nicotine activates nicotinic receptors. Yeah. What activates muscarinic receptors? Muscarine. Hey. Never heard of it. It is the uh, one of the chief uh, toxins in poisonous mushrooms. Okay. So when you eat uh, poisonous mushrooms, the thing that will kill you is muscarine. Okay. Because it activates uh, your muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. Okay. Um. Yeesh. There are, uh, there is one important muscarinic agonist that is clinically useful, and that is pilocarpine. Pilocarpine. Yeah. What's that useful for? So you can't get tissue-specific effects on muscarinic receptors because we ain't got any good drugs. However, you can get tissue-specific effects by putting a very small amount of a non-specific drug, such as pilocarpine, directly into the tissue. Ah. Okay. So pilocarpine is in some eye drops. I think it produces constriction. Constriction. Yeah. Right. Of the pupil. So that 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 affects all the receptors M1 to M5. Uh well, I think it would do were you were it to be given say intravenously, but when you give it into the eye it affects specifically M3 receptors because they are the predominant. Because that's what's there. Yes. But if you stick them anywhere. Oh okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> okay, so muscarine and pilocarpine are agonists of muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. Antagonists, the only one uh, that's really important is atropine. Yeah. Go to that? Yeah. Deadly Nightshade. Oh, right, is it? Yeah, it's pretty bad stuff. I've just heard of, of it from neuroscience lectures. Neuroscience lectures? I haven't talked about atropine. No, I've had neuroscience lectures before you, you know. Have you been cheating on me, Sam? <laughs> it was 15 years ago. You've been getting neuroscience from somebody else. It was a long time ago. Oh, it's over now. Yeah, I want that in writing. <laughs> All right, atropine is, despite being pretty nasty stuff, is on the World Health Organization's list of, I think, 100 drugs which are essential for any medical service to be considered basic. Uh. And it's used for lots of things. Uh, in so-called uh, westernized or advanced medical uh, systems, it's been superseded by... Other drugs, um, but it is still used to make your pupils dilate when you have an eye exam. Okay. There you go. And it's the antidote if you eat deadly mushrooms. Oh, it's the antidote? It's the antidote to muscarine because it's an antagonist. Ah, is an right. Antagonist. Yeah. <laughs> so bear that in mind. If you're in a, if you're in a uh, uh, foreign country that conforms to basic World Health Organization standards and you eat some deadly mushrooms, they will have atropine there. Okay. okay. Store that for later use. Right. Thank you. All right, so with every neurotransmitter, which we talked about in week one, two, three, we talked about 
the synthesis of that neurotransmitter. We talked about the receptors for that neurotransmitter, and we talked about the digestion or the turnover, metabolism of that neurotransmitter. Yeah. Because if you can block the turnover or the metabolism of a neurotransmitter, then you increase its abundance and you can increase the effects of it. Uh, acetylcholinesterase is the enzyme which chews up acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft. If you inhibit acetylcholinesterase, then you increase the abundance of acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft. Yeah. Uh, if you do this reversibly, it is clinically useful. Myasthenia gravis is treated in part with reversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, as is glaucoma. Uh-huh. If you treat people with an irreversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, you'll generally kill them. I can imagine. Uh, sarin and organophosphates and other uh, toxins, which are components of weapons of mass destruction, are irreversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Oh, okay. yeah, what do you think about that? Nasty. Very nasty. Yeah. All right, that's acetylcholine. Any questions? No. <laughs> okay. Brain filling. Uh, noradrenaline. We'll talk about same basic principle, receptors and uh, metabolism of. There are two major types of adrenergic receptors, alpha and beta. Those alpha and beta themselves occur in multiple forms, alpha 1, alpha 2, etc., uh, like we said, no, did we say? We didn't say. They are metabotropic, which means they are... Uh, not ionotropic. Good man. And um, they also show tissue-specific distribution, but unlike muscarinic receptors, there are some very good uh, subtype-specific drugs for adrenergic receptors. Okay. Would you like me to tell you about some of them? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, I'll try and focus on... Only those that are important. Probably should have looked up which ones are in the formulary, but I didn't. Sorry. Uh, phenylephedrine? Phenylephedrine. Yeah. Okay. Treats hypertension. Right, yeah. Agonist alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. Uh-huh. Prezosin. Prezosin. Uh-huh. Treats hypertension. Right. Is an antagonist at alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. Makes sense. Uh, alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. Oh, I should have said alpha-1 receptors are um, on smooth muscle in the heart, prostate. Yeah. Alpha-2, uh, they are in the central nervous system, smooth muscle, fat cells. Agonists, clonidine, and a drug which I can't pronounce, but is something like guanfacine. Sounds good. Ever heard of that? No. So you can't correct my pronunciation? No. All right, fantastic. Also treat hypertension. They are agonists, alpha-2, adrenergic receptors, and yohimbine, which is an aphrodisiac, is an antagonist of alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. Okay. He is falling asleep. No, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. And, uh, well, I've lost my page now. Beta adrenergic receptors, beta-1 receptors are on the heart, beta-2, uh, smooth muscle, skeletal muscle in the liver, beta-3, fat cells. Not so many subtype-specific uh, reagents for beta adrenergic receptors general beta agonists oh I've lost my page isoprotenerol increases heart rate beta antagonists propranolol must have heard of that one very important no yeah beta blocker yeah sure blocks beta adrenergic receptors yeah reduces heart rate contracting yeah. reports okay yeah alright yeah yeah <laughs> almost almost there okay we should talk briefly about inhibitors of noradrenaline synthesis, release, and reuptake. So, uh, should we wait for, wait for the, the, the lady with the trolley to go past. Yeah, she's not offering us tea and cakes, unfortunately. I wish. All right. So, very simply, the reuptake of noradrenaline is blocked by things like cocaine and amphetamines, which we talked about, I think, in week one, two, three. Yeah. Uh, the metabolism of noradrenaline occurs in part, or in large part, through the actions of an enzyme called monoamine oxidase A. And MAOA inhibitors are used uh, both as antihypertensives and antidepressants. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, finally, 
yeah. in terms of neurotransmitters. We've talked about so-called classical neurotransmitters, proper neurotransmitters. There are other uh, neurotransmitters at work within the autonomic nervous system. And most autonomic nervous system neurons use more than one neurotransmitter. The other neurotransmitter which most of these neurons use is usually a peptide. Things like NPY, kephalins, smackstein, uh, that sort of thing. What do we know about neuropeptides? Uh, They're slow. Oh. Even slower than metabotropic receptors. Even slower than anatomists trying to learn neuroscience. Mm, I don't know. Not that possible. slow. No. Um, that's pretty much all we can tell you. Lots of people have spent lots of money trying to develop uh, drugs which act upon neuropeptides in the autonomic system. I haven't got very far yet. Okay. All right, that's it. Oh, God. I'm going to have to go listen to that again three times. Uh, should we summarize? Yes, please. Preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems release acetylcholine, and they release it onto nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, which are on postganglionic neurons. Postganglionic neurons uh, of the sympathetic system release noradrenaline onto alpha and beta adrenergic receptors on the effector organs. Parasympathetic postganglionic neurons release acetylcholine onto muscarinic receptors on the effector organs. And you can monkey about with the autonomic nervous system function using agonists and antagonists of those receptors and drugs which block the reuptake or breakdown of the neurotransmitter. You still with me, Sam? 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 Uh, okay, that's it, mate. Brain fog. We'll do some anatomy when we talk about movement, I promise. Uh, very good. Thank you, Phil. Bloody hell. I hope this helps those of our, who are very good auditory learners. Uh, if there are those who are not so keen on the auditory learning, there will also be, hopefully by the time we get this posted, a self-test quiz on newtonsneuroscience.blogspot.com uh, so our students can test their knowledge. Sweet, good. Yeah, might be good to draw some diagrams for this as well. But, uh, okay, what's next? So next is neuroscience of movement, is it? Yeah, probably. Top banana. All right, thank you, Phil. All right, anytime. All right, next time, ta-da. Cheerio.